Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 20 years later, you look back and say, you're an unhappy person. Say, I never did what I wanted to do. Or, I never spent enough time with my kids. And that's when you have these deathbed regrets. And I really believe so many of them come down to procrastination in situations when there is no deadline. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Hey, Jordan Harbinger here from The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Tim Urban of the blog Wait But Why, one of my favorite blogs. We're gonna talk about procrastination, something he is not only very good at, but has also done a TED Talk on the subject. We'll also discuss different types of procrastination, such that we might see ourselves doing it even if we think we don't. This was me, actually. And starting to figure out why it works, how to fix it. This one, in my opinion, is a good listen and an interesting way to think about the problem, even if you're not a procrastinator or you just think you aren't. So enjoy this one with Tim Urban, and welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm here with producer Jason. As you know, The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work, even if you're a procrastinator. And if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and or toolbox where we discuss things like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, and everything else we teach here at AOC. In the U.S., just text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the right answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, here's Tim Urban. Tim, what do you do in one sentence? I think about complicated things for a long time until I'm ready to write thorough blog posts capturing the full set of ideas. I can vouch for this. One of the things I like about your blog, Wait But Why, it tracks the way that many people, including myself, think, and I mentioned this pre-show as well, where it's like, here's what Elon Musk is doing, which by the way, your interview with Elon Musk was brilliant. For those of you who don't know, wait, but why, there is a essentially a book in blog post form which is about Elon Musk that was done in concert with Elon Musk because he called you to do this, right? Yes, he got in touch after having tweeted out a few Wait But Why posts, which was really exciting at that time, and asked if I was interested in writing kind of similarly long, thorough things about the industries that he's involved in. Then I learned that that would involve an opportunity to kind of work with him and his executives at both SpaceX and Tesla, and to really kind of learn the full story about what they're doing from them, and then couple that with a lot of research and dive into all that stuff. So that was an obvious no-brainer project. Yeah. And your head fell off, apparently, according to the drawing on your blog. Yeah, I don't know why I, I showed everyone that. It was very embarrassing. But yeah, really not a call you're expecting to get at any point. So, First of all, when Elon's office calls you, were you like, who is this? It's got to be like a buddy of mine messing with me. Yeah, it started with an email. And I just thought it was going to be way less cool of an actual thing than it actually was. It was one of those, I just thought, it's too good to be true if this is actually him wanting to really work with you. So I didn't even consider that that's what was happening, but then that actually was what was happening. Yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised by the actual phone call that then ensued. What I like about the way that you write, like I said, it tracks the way a lot of people think, which is, all right, Elon Musk is doing this, but in order to understand this, you have to understand 
why electrical power is important. So here's a bunch of pages on that. And in order to understand that, you've got to understand why carbon and fossil fuels are bad. So here's a bunch of stuff on that. But by the way, in order to really get clear on that, we got to talk about space and how the solar system works and radiation and global warming. And then we'll come back out and talk more about electrical power, which then leads us to Tesla, which then jumps back up another notch in the hierarchy to the way that Elon Musk thinks. Oh, and also there's SpaceX. So let's talk more about space and about rockets and then physics and then go back to the way that Elon Musk thinks. And that's why these things get long, but it's very important because otherwise what happens is I pause one blog post and I go, I've got to start Googling how this works because otherwise I don't have the background. But you've kind of done that and then built it into the post, which I think is really cool because it's funny because what we're gonna talk about today, procrastination, one of the reasons that that happens is because your brain works really well in this other way in terms of going down every rabbit hole, covering it exhaustively, and then coming back up to the original topic. Yeah, well, what you're seeing when you see a blog post of mine doing that is you're just seeing what my mind just went through as I learned the situation. Because it's you know a disadvantage I have as a writer is that I don't know any more about the topics I'm writing about than the reader when I first take the topic on. But an advantage that I have is because of that, when I start writing word one of a post, I just went through the process of educating myself on the whole thing. And that involves me saying, well, I don't understand this. So then I'll read about why electric cars are important. And then I'll say, well, okay, electric cars, how does that exactly work? And then I'll go and I'll read about how electric cars work for a while. And then I'll realize, wow, really, this is like a product of the electricity revolution. But when did that happen? And then I'll go and I'll start reading about the 1880s, about that. And then I'll say, well, then why weren't there electric cars from the beginning? Because when cars started, everything cool and everything new was electricity back then. That was like, cars didn't start before we harnessed electricity. They started right after. So then I'll say, well, well why that? And so then I'll read about that and I'll realize, oh, because Henry Ford figured out how to make gas cars cheap first. Okay, well, how did he do that? How does a gas car work? You know, and so I'll go through this and I'll just basically be a curious and perfectionist procrastinator because it's also procrastination when I'm sometimes reading way more than I need to. And I'll do that for three weeks. And on the end of that, now I have a thorough understanding and I'm assuming that every reader is basically me three weeks ago before I started researching. So I know exactly the questions they're going to have. I want them to feel as satisfied at the end of the post as I do now having finally gotten to the bottom of every one of these why pathways to just get the full understanding that I now have. Okay, so what you're doing is basically what James Burke used to do in the old show Connections. You're finding something and then taking it back and back and back and back to the point of inception and then extrapolating that out to a modern post. And the reason that I think that way, I used to be frustrated when, you know, I would read, I still am frustrated a lot of times when I'm reading something It's one of these icky topics that I don't understand. Other people understand it, but I don't ever understand this topic. Someone can be talking about the Fed lowering interest rates, and I have no idea what that means, and I still don't know what that means. Or they'll be talking about Iraq and how, you know, there's a proxy war going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I don't get it. And when I read an article, what happens is I read it, and I still don't quite get it. And I assume if I keep reading articles, I'll eventually get it, but it never happens. What I realize is because every article is like a branch or a leaf of a tree, but I don't have a trunk. I can read a branch and the branch falls because it has nothing to hang on to. I can read a leaf and it just falls down. It goes in one ear, out the other. And so what you need to do, you have to bite the bullet once and give yourself the thorough education of a tree trunk foundation of knowledge. And then from then on, suddenly, not only when you read an article or read a headline or hear something, not only do you get it, but it's actually delicious suddenly. It's so interesting. Suddenly, okay, wait, wait, what happened there? What is Saudi Arabia? Are they funding ISIS? And that you make sense suddenly. And so that's part of what I try to do is the really long posts are an attempt to build a tree trunk for me and anyone else who reads it. Because otherwise you're going down a fractal of undiscriminate knowledge that can go anywhere, anytime, and not having a foundation. Yeah, and then you feel like you don't like the topic. You feel like too dumb for this stuff. Or I just, I hate this topic. I'm bored by it. No, you're not. You just don't have that tree trunk yet. You can actually transform the topic in people's heads from something they thought they were bored by to something they realize is fascinating. And then they start reading more about it. And then they actually really get to know it. It's a little like if you're trying to learn the guitar, you know, you're not having fun at the beginning because you suck at it. And so usually people give up or it's just too much of a chore to practice. But then you hit a point when you suddenly cross over and you're still get to a point where it starts to be fun to play. 
And that's when suddenly you play all the time and then you get really good. And it's a little like that. And once you get the free trunk foundation, you find yourself just reading article after article or watching something on it or talking about it. And then you really get it and you had to get over that initial hump. So that's kind of my way of thinking about it. By the way, congrats on the recent TED Talk, which was actually really good as well. That's an incredible experience that people who are literally twice our age are gunning for all the time. It's hard for people who have the same procrastination issues to visualize getting from, wow, I have a hard time focusing on stuff, I'm gonna be a huge failure, to, hey, guess what? This is part of the way my brain works. It can be controlled in part, and also might even be a strength. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on procrastination and really dive in the spirit of wait but why, dive down the rabbit hole and dive into this stuff. Because what you said really resonated a lot with me. I'm not a procrastinator, but I still see so many commonalities in the way that people think who do procrastinate, and in fact, in people that don't, have similar sets of habits. And one thing that really struck me in reading your series on procrastination is that it is in a large part like depression, in that one cannot simply stop at will or try not to do it. There's a lot more at play here. What's going on when we're procrastinating? Where do we even start with this topic? Well, the first thing I'll say before I get into it is the depression analogy is valid in another way, too, in that it's much harder than just stopping. But people who don't have the problem routinely underestimate how bad the problem is. They also they overestimate how much it's in your control because it's in their control. So depression is the classic example. People say, well, just go to the gym, you know, and think about all the good things in life. It has no chance of helping in that person because it's not understanding the problem. And my college roommate, I remember he said to me once, I was on my like seventh all-nighter paper, you know, the seventh paper in a row where I was pulling just a tragic, dark, depressing all-nighter the night before, you know, hating myself, furious at myself. He said to me, you know, I think that, you know, for the next paper, from right from the beginning, just don't procrastinate and you'll be fine. And I wanted to say, oh my God, don't procrastinate and I'll be fine. Thank you so much. It's literally like telling someone who's depressed, listen, you know, be happier. It's like telling someone who has a weight problem, hey, just don't eat as much. I have the solution. It's that ridiculous. But I think people now have wrapped their head around the fact that that's ridiculous with depression or with a weight problem more than they have with procrastination because procrastination has so many different forms and there's so many light versions of procrastination where it's not really a problem and the person just kind of, you know, oh yeah, I totally go on Facebook a few times a day at work. I'm such a procrastinator. So it gets mixed up with cases that aren't really a serious problem. The depression thing really is a good comparison for that reason. I saw it right away in that when I read about your procrastination, I was like, oh, I procrastinate sometimes too, especially in college. And then I read yours and I was like, no, I don't do this <laughs> at all. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I'm a pretty serious case. By the way, I'm still not nearly at the end of the spectrum. I've gotten emails from people that are far more serious cases than I am and people whose lives have totally been ruined. I mean, whose marriages have been ruined, who's out of job, who turned to crime because of it. I mean, really, really bad situations. I'm still somewhere in the middle, but I'm pretty far down there. You know, to kind of answer your first question, which was well, what's really going on, one interesting thing I've kind of noticed is I've written about a bunch of other topics that also involve kind of a battle in the brain. You know, I've written about why we care so much what other people think of us. That, to me, comes down to part of our brain that thinks it's in a tribe in 50,000 BC. It has not evolved yet because civilization moves much quicker than evolution. So, you know, the same exact people who evolved to be perfectly suited to fit in in a tribe and to be a good tribe member and to follow the leader and to be well-liked and to care so much about being well-liked and to be so terrified of embarrassment and shame because those feelings turn into you being ostracized from the tribe, which is your lifeline. And then you either are kind of a loser in the tribe with low status and you never mate and your kids end up with the same fate or you just get kicked out and you starve to death. So that's an example of a whole separate battle in the brain. And I've done this with a handful of posts in addition to procrastination. And I started to realize this is all one major problem. And that this is, of course, what people talk about with mindfulness. You know, it's the concept that there's, on one hand, we are animals. We are biological, physical, living, breathing animals. And we are also tribal animals, simple, tribal, warring animals. And then on the other hand, Unlike all other animals, we have this powerful prefrontal cortex, which is this like beacon of rationality and higher thinking and higher consciousness 
that's what makes humans humans. And when we think about, you know, me, the, the part of us that is that inner chatter of I should do this and these are the problems I have, that's your prefrontal cortex thinking and being itself. And what happens is it's like the prefrontal cortex is this beacon of higher consciousness that woke up one day in evolution and it looked around and said, oh, damn it, I'm in an animal stuck inside of an animal. And so now what, what, what a human is, is this unique combination of this higher consciousness battling with its animal self, its animal brain, its animal body, to try to convince the animal body that we are not in a tribe. And these, a lot of our fears are not based on real danger. And there's, you know, more to life than, you know, eating and sleeping and reproducing. That battle comes out in a lot of ways. And I think most of us are dealing with that battle in one way or another. Some people, again, they're too driven by what other people think. Other people, they're driven with a weight problem. In my case, the thing I'm driven by most, the way that that same battle in the brain comes out for me is procrastination. And I think procrastination is just an example of the major battle that we're all dealing with. So that's kind of like the big picture of where procrastination fits in. The way that that battle is, is I kind of talk about this battle as it applies specifically to procrastination as the prefrontal cortex, which I use as a cartoon stick figure called the rational decision maker. That's the prefrontal cortex. It's his struggle against the limbic system that is ancient and is deeply intertwined with our body, has pure, perfect communication with our body. It's where fear lives and it's where you know hunger lives and it's where sex drive lives and all those things. And it's the fight or flight part of our brain. And that part I refer to as the instant gratification monkey. Because who wants to talk about like brain structures? That's super boring and it's not relatable. So instead we have the rational decision maker and the instant gratification monkey in our brains at all times. And the monkey cares about the present. He only knows the present exists. To him, there is no future and there is no past. So he thinks at all times, let's be doing what feels best right now. So if we're jogging, the rational decision maker is saying, of course, we need to jog. And the monkey says, but why would we jog? It feels much better to stop. You know, why would I go on this computer and work when I could be playing on the internet, which is much more fun? The monkey thinks the rational decision maker is insane. And then the rational decision maker, who's unlike the monkey, does see the future, does remember the past, does see the big picture and understands, you know, this is a big puzzle we're part of and we need to be thinking about the whole puzzle. And he just wants to be doing whatever makes sense to be doing at any given point. So you have this one character wants to be doing what makes sense in the big picture. And the other character wants to be doing whatever's easiest and most pleasurable and most fun right at this exact instant. And that's the source of this battle. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This makes a lot of sense, right? Because one of the things Jason and I were talking about is how does social media feed the monkey, but it feeds the monkey just like other things that you or I or anybody else has done to procrastinate feeds the monkey. It's an easy one and an exciting one, but one of the things I thought you said was absolutely hilarious was you were working on something. This might have even been your PhD thesis, and I definitely want to get to that story, but you did something like, all right, I've got to get buckled down on this PhD thing, but first I need to go to Google Earth and look at India. Wait, tell us what happened with your PhD, because this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Definitely tell us what happened there because I actually started to do that after I watched your TED Talk. It it was fascinating. So definitely, please give us the backstory of that. Well, well, first of all, I have a bunch of examples of the monkey, you know, the rational decision maker. And in the talk, I say the rational decision maker wants to do this. But then the monkey says, okay, but also actually let's do this. And I can say with complete honesty that every single one of those examples is something that I've done word for word. There's nothing invented in that talk. So the example you're talking about is something I've literally done exactly the way I described it, which is at a time when I was trying to work actually on the TED Talk, I could feel the rational decision maker was unbelievably nervous about the situation because he knew that I was not an experienced public speaker. He knew what the stakes were for a TED Talk. He knew that you only get one take. He knew that unlike all other talks where you can just Talk through your stuff like a human. No, TED Talk, you have to memorize every single word and be economical because there's only 14 minutes and you can't go over by even one second. So he was thinking like, this is an incredibly important thing to not procrastinate on. We need to work on this and work on this every day until you know we get there. This is really, really something we can't do our normal thing for. But again, the monkey doesn't understand what a TED Talk is. He doesn't care what a TED Talk is. He says it is 3.21 p.m. on a Wednesday what is currently happening in life? Well, I'm sitting here on a couch. Oh, and there's the internet. And there's an iPad. And hey, you know, look at the iPad. Hey, look at, oh, Google Earth. Google Earth is fun. And the monkey, this is all he's thinking is literally what's in front of him. And so what I did that particular day, which is what I referenced in the talk, I could have given 20 different examples. But in this case, I opened Google Earth and I found myself Zooming into the tip of India, you know, the India is this big triangle. And, and at the very bottom, like, cool, like, what's going on there? It's like a little city at the very tip. So I went down to the very tip. And of course, once you get too close, it doesn't look like a tip. It's just like a coastline. And I zoomed in. And I'm kind of like, oh, because I've never been to India. You know, I've, I've done a decent amount of traveling. But India is that country I'm waiting because I want to go when I have like a month, you know, which is dumb, by the way, because if India were divided into 15 countries, like it would be thought of as going to each one of them. But instead, you know, it, it would be like if Africa didn't have country lines we would all just think, oh, I need to visit Africa. I need to do my Africa trip, but I want a month to do Africa. But no one thinks that way because it's divided into 50 countries. So we would never treat it that way. I and mean, we treat India that way. Side note. Anyway, back to this. I'm at the bottom and I'm looking at the shore and I'm looking at the village and I'm suddenly like fascinated. I'm like, oh, look, there's palm trees and look at the architecture and look, there's little people. And so then I start scrolling up and I'm like, what happens? And I find myself two and a half hours later hitting Nepal and I just went to the top of India I traveled across India. This is a time when I absolutely, absolutely had to be working. That's just classic. It's something that I would do. I mean, that, that could not have been more normal. And that is 100% the monkey. Literally, have you seen Being John Malkovich? Yes. It's literally like that. Like The rational decision maker is screaming in my head, stop it. But he just ends up not only because he stopped being able to control my physical body, like the monkey's actually the one with my hand scrolling, 
but he actually, his voice starts being drowned out of my consciousness where I like go into this state of like bizarre denial where he goes into my subconscious and suddenly like I'm just staring at India, even though in the back, there's this vague yelling from the other room, screaming, pounding on, but he's kind of like locked in the other room where I can barely hear him now. And I'm just like going up India, even though there's a vague sense of self-loathing. And then they get to the top and I look at the time and I have dinner now in a half hour. And I'm just thinking, I cannot believe I just went from 321 to 630. And now I have to get ready for this dinner. And I didn't do anything this afternoon. This is just like all the time for me. And not only is this something that happens to you seemingly when you have a deadline, but you can even zoom out more and see how this has affected your life. You mentioned that after college, where you had all this important work that you procrastinated, which is normal because a lot of people think, I don't really wanna do this, this is gonna be hard for your failure, you thought, all right, I spent the whole time screwing around on my piano and other things, maybe I'm supposed to be a composer, and then you go to LA, the monkey refuses to let you pour yourself into your music career, and the rational decision maker, the voice in your head that is constantly being distracted by the monkey, is thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe we're supposed to be chasing the monkey, maybe the monkey's gonna help us figure out what we need to do. How did that work out for you? Right, so that's kind of like this macro procrastination. And I didn't understand my own problem that well in college, and I just thought, look, I'm not supposed to be sitting around learning stuff. I'm supposed to be writing music. That's obviously what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm doing it all the time. That's every time I sit down with a book in school for a class I'm, you know, in theory excited about, I find myself not reading, not doing the work, and instead I'm sitting on the piano, sitting on the keyboard, you know, with my headphones on for hours. Obviously, this means something. I'm supposed to be doing this. And then I went to LA, giddy, to start this music career. Finally, I can just do what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing the thing that I really do love. Good for me. And I get out there and totally unstructured career, you know, that pays off like 14 years after you started. That's how those careers work. And, you know, you have to just sit there and grind for a long time. And what happens? I do nothing because not because I, in general, I have the decision I'm not going to do anything this year. No, I think I'm doing something at all times. I just think I'm going to start it, you know, soon. And then I sit down, okay, today I'm going to do it. And yeah, well, not right now. I'll do it later today. And then later today, yeah, it's a little late. I'll do it tomorrow. And then it just happens day after day after day. So what am I doing instead? What's the new keyboard is now my side job. I'm tutoring students after school because that's a great way to support yourself while you're trying to be a film scorer. So I start doing that like crazy because that's just, you know, it's procrastination from the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And I end up starting an entire tutoring company that derails me off my creative stuff for seven years. And by the way, while that was happening, I start procrastinating on that by going back to some of the creative stuff. Now, ironically, the thing that I find myself doing now is back to basically what I was doing in school, which is learning. And I'm back to that. And so it's this thing where I realize I'm on point one, the monkey's on point two. So I jumped to point two. Because that's clearly what I want to do. But then the monkey doesn't want to be there anymore. He wanted to be there when the stakes were low, when it didn't matter, when it was avoiding the thing I had to do, that someone else was making me do, that I was supposed to do. And once I'm actually there, and, and now I'm supposed to do the fun thing, well, now it's, the rational decision maker wants me to do it, and he doesn't want to do it anymore. Now he'll just avoid it. And so he's just kind of this force of self-defeating resistance in a lot of ways. So there's some dark thing going on. I still haven't quite figured out this part of the psychology, but it's not just that the monkey you know, wants to do whatever's fun. It's also some other darker thing where it's like, he doesn't want to go for it. And anything that will make me really happy because the stakes are too high. His fear, the limbic system fear kicks in maybe that what if, you know, you're risking being really unhappy. If this doesn't work, let's just not do anything. You know, there's something going on there. But yeah, I found myself kind of, whenever I was somewhere and I jumped where the monkey was, he wasn't there anymore. He was somewhere else now. And that, that really took over my whole twenties. I mean, I had a good decade. I still had a lot of fun. I still learned a lot of stuff and mulled over a lot of things but I was never being really fulfilled at work because of this problem. And this becomes a huge issue because it's reinforcing, I would imagine, where you start to build this as a habit, you also start to make it. Jason brought up a good point as well. You don't really hear about people who procrastinate that don't make it. They live silently and suffer through, and some of them are listening right now, and they're like, I know that this is screwing up my whole life, and I can't really stop. We hear about it from people like you and friends of mine that are like, oh, I procrastinate so much. Thank goodness, dot, 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 I was able to start a company or figure out how to sort of cope with it, even though it still makes you miserable sometimes and creates all this undue stress and, and shortens your lifespan, literally, because 
because you've got to stay up all night to create things that you had months and months and months to create. And there are other problems associated with this, right? I mean, actually, let's talk about this. Not only are you doing lifespan shortening all-nighters and dealing with all this stress, but there's other effects that procrastination has on the quality of work that you do. Would you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, I find that it doesn't let you be present in the work you're doing and it doesn't let you give your all. And then if you're a perfectionist like me, then you want to give none. Because the worst thing, I don't certainly don't want to give 60% effort to something and then show the world, this is what I can do. If it's not going to be 100% of my effort, I don't want to do anything. Perfectionist plus procrastinator quickly turns into not trying at all, not doing anything, because the perfectionist in you is so frustrated with the procrastinator in you for not giving this a chance to be perfect. And then he's put his foot down. So for, there's a couple of reasons why it is confused as a light and funny topic, you know, because there's another character in the brain called the panic monster. And that's a very important character for the procrastinator. And what happens is, you know, the being John Malkovich situation, the monkey will be taking over your body and holding the wheel in your brain. The rational decision maker really can never grab the wheel, not when it really matters. He can grab the wheel to go to the bank and grab the wheel to go meet up with a friend when he's supposed to and grab the wheel to, you know, get something done. But he can't take the wheel to do that hard work on stuff that's, you know, they're going to pay off in the far future. So it's this thing that seems like it'll never end. And then the panic monster eventually comes roaring into the room because suddenly there is a deadline that is now outrageously close. Or you realize you're about to be seriously embarrassed at this wedding because you don't have your speech ready. On the far end of the procrastination spectrum, their panic monster doesn't even work anymore. Those people I really feel for, their whole life can fall apart. But even people like me, the panic monster can save most procrastinators. And so the panic monster will come roaring into the room. And that is when the rational decision maker, you know, the monkey's terrified of the panic monster. You know, it's like the rational decision maker freaks out suddenly because of the panic monster. And he jumps on the wheel, forcefully takes it. And that's when something gets done. And that's fine for situations when there are deadlines. There is a thing to bring out the panic monster, like school has papers due and exams. And a lot of jobs have deadlines and assignments you have to finish and bosses who are going to be asking for something. So in those cases, for even a bad procrastinator, they usually get by because the panic monster saves them. Now, it, even in those cases, it can ruin your life and that instead of spending time with your family, you're wasting, you're spending that time getting stuff you should have gotten done at work, but you didn't. And now you have to get it done then. So it can hurt your family life. It can hurt your ability to see your friends. Procrastinators often never find themselves doing things like reading books, even though they love reading. They find themselves never picking up that guitar or that surfboard or that tennis racket or other things that actually bring them a lot of joy because they wasted too much time when they were supposed to be working that now it invades their leisure time and it can destroy their life, you know, work-life balance and just really destroy their lifestyle. So it's not good. It's bad. But at least on paper, look, the person's still bringing in a paycheck. The person's still showing up at work. The person still seems like they have it together, even if they're driving their family crazy and people are mad at them without understanding the reasons that they're doing this. But there's also a much darker situation on top of that. The point of the first thing is that, you know, people look at that and they laugh at that person. They say, oh, of course you're pulling an all-nighter. Like me in college, my friend thought it was funny and it was funny. It was funny to me. I still got it done. I didn't get kicked out of the school. I did okay. I underachieved and I hated myself. People weren't worried about me. They just thought this is Tim being Tim. And we can treat procrastination like a funny thing. But then you think about all the situations in life where there's no deadlines. There's no reason for the panic monster to show up which is so many things like, for example, spending time with your family. That's the thing that continues to get pushed away for someone who ends up being kind of a quote workaholic, even though they're not actually working harder than someone else. They just procrastinate on that, which invades their family time. And then the panic monster makes sure they get the work done, but it doesn't make sure they spend time with their kids because there's, even though you might feel a real urge to do that, you're not in a panic about it. And you need that full emotion of panic in order to really do something if you're a procrastinator. That's one example. Another is just a lot of people want to quit their job or get divorced or go for a girl that they've always had feelings for. And that's, they say, yeah, I'll do that tomorrow because the monkey doesn't want to do that because that's hard and icky and stressful. And the tribal person in you is super not into going on that kind of social risk or whatever. The monkey very much doesn't want to do it for that reason. The rational decision maker has no power and the panic monster isn't going to show up because there's no deadline, so you never do it. A lot of times people want to start a certain career like me with film scoring. They want to start a career in the arts or an entrepreneurial career. I want to start that business. I want to write that book. I really want to record my album. I want to get a band together. People have these dreams. And so often the kind of people that 
can do those are ones that are have this situation under control. The rational decision maker can go out and work on something that is far away with no deadline because it's the right thing to do. Procrastinators, the monkey's too powerful. And there's no panic monster because there's no deadlines on those things yet until you've actually gotten started and actually built up some real world momentum, which is when deadlines start happening. And before you've done that, there's no panic monster and therefore the procrastination just extends outward forever. It's not contained like it is when you're in school or when you have deadlines at work, it's not contained. So it just, it can really, you know, 20 years later, you look back and say, you're an unhappy person. Say, I never did what I wanted to do. I never spent enough time with my kids. And that's when you have these deathbed regrets. And I really believe so many of them come down to procrastination in situations when there is no deadline. You know, it's a serious problem that should be treated like these other serious problems. And it's not enough. Yeah, I think that the quality of life, the quality of work, those concerns are often ignored by people who procrastinate because they're more concerned with the immediate stress, which is what the panic monster is actually responding to, or even what the panic monster is actually causing. There's also, you're not even enjoying the things that you're doing when you procrastinate, right? You have self-loathing, there's guilt involved, you're on the dark playground. That's the term that I use for that place that every procrastinator knows which is when you're on things like I mentioned when I'm going up Google Earth. By the way, that's not like, if that's my rational decision maker agrees to that, meaning I'm supposed to be doing leisure time, I'm supposed to be playing on my iPad. In that case, I love that activity. It's really interesting for me. I was genuinely interested in looking at India all the way to the top. Like I, That's me. That's I love doing that kind of stuff. But I was having no fun. I'm not actually happy at all. And I'm not enjoying it at all. I'm miserable. And I'm full of anxiety and dread and self-hatred. And that is this very familiar feeling that procrastinators feel. And I call that being in the dark playground. You're doing things that are, you're on Facebook, or you're eating something, or you're hanging out with your girlfriend, or you're doing something that's fun. And you know, this is not the time to be doing this. I have to do my work now so I can do this stuff later. But you can't help it and you're doing it anyway. That's being in the dark playground. Right, so this isn't actual leisure time. It's sort of disguised as such, although it's not enjoyed. Well, yeah, and the irony is that, like, you know, if you have, let's just say, 10 hours of time and you have seven hours of work to do or six hours of work to do, if you just did your six hours of work and then your four hours of leisure time, you're happy the whole time. Because even when you're working, if you're working, you're supposed to be working, you may not be fully happy, but you're content. You feel positive about yourself. Your self-esteem is high. You're happy you're doing it. And then you feel great when it's done. And you have this amazing four hours of leisure time. What the procrastinator does is he spends the six hours or too many of the six hours not doing work. It's not like he's getting his happiness in a different. He's not getting he's not happy at all during that time. He's really miserable. Then after work, either he's on the leisure time that's not earned and he's mad at himself and he doesn't feel good to be leisurely when you didn't get your stuff done. Or he's not even enjoying that at all because he's now having to do the work then. Again, it's, it's completely irrational. There's no argument for it. There's no good logic for it. It's totally an irrational, self-defeating thing. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. 
Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. I think that what you created in terms of creating the procrastinator matrix, which is the Eisenhower matrix on your blog for procrastinators is super sharp and fascinating. Very, very astute actually as well, because you've got the quadrants where things are urgent, important, not urgent, not important. And you have surmised and very clearly pointed out that although people who procrastinate live in Q4 kind of just farting around, Q1 and Q3 are crazy. The panic monster's going nuts. And Q2, which is where all the great stuff happens, it's Narnia, right? There's no urgency, there's no ability to plan. And unfortunately, great work, deep work, things like that, a la Cal Newport, that's what happens in Q2. It's where you thrive, it's where you blossom, it's where your business takes shape, it's where you quote unquote build your dreams, right? How do you get deep work done? I mean, obviously you've figured out how to do some of this while procrastinating because You're the exact opposite of Cal Newport, as as we said pre-show, but you couldn't write the posts without getting to the point where deep work actually takes over and you get shit done. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like you said, Q2, which is the quadrant, which is important, but it's not urgent. That stuff, which is so much of what really matters in life, that's where procrastinators fail. They do stuff that's important and urgent because it's urgent. The panic monster cares about urgent stuff. And they do a lot of stuff that's not important, but urgent, like emails and errands. They do meetings. They do a ton of those things because it's easy. So the monkey has less of a problem with it. And the panic monster needs you to get it done. So you can feel busy and you can feel productive when you're doing that, but you're not actually. And that's the epiphany a lot of procrastinators need to have that I actually have a word for these people. It's an impostinator because you're like, you're a procrastinator in disguise where you seem like, oh yeah, this person's so productive. They're all over the place. They're doing all this stuff. They're always busy. They're always too busy for everyone. And yet they're not really working on the important stuff. And I would define important or someone else defined important like this. And I think I stole it from them, which is things that contribute to your long-term goals, values, and mission. And if you think about it like that, a lot of people who seem super productive are actually these grand procrastinators. So that's spending too much time in quadrant three. And then of course, a lot of the time in the dark playground is quadrant four, stuff that's not important and not urgent, which can be the best place to spend time if you've already gotten your work done. But procrastinators are there in the dark playground before they should be there. And that's the problem. But anyway, to your question about like how I managed to ever do anything. So, you know, yeah, I mean, starting Wait But Why it was a hard thing. It was a full Q2 task because there was no panic monster yet because there were no deadlines. There was a new blog. No one cared. No one knew about it. And this is where I would just say I'm bad, but I'm not so bad that I'm utterly permanently 100% crippled. I'm like 90% crippled. And what happened was, you know, it took me a year. So my business partner, uh, the, you know, I said I started that tutoring company in L.A., I did that with an old friend and business partner, Andrew. And, you know, this was kind of our idea that I was going to go start this creative project that I was excited about that also could be an interesting business. So it was a good project for everyone. And he would kind of continue running the company. I would go start this. So one thing that helped is that I had someone else who was counting on me, someone else. And there was some guilt that built up. I'm like, wow, he's working on our other thing. To make this fair, I need to be starting this thing. Like, I can't not do anything. So that was one nice point of pressure. And then it it took me a year after we had the first initial discussion to actually start it. I wanted to write some initial posts, which is really hard to sit down and write a good post when there's nowhere to even put it yet. And no guarantee that anyone will read it. So that took me a long time. And I think he was pretty mad at me for some of that year. You know, I mean, it was hard. And then I also had to start, is this going to be on a blogger? Is this going to be on WordPress or Squarespace? And how do I get the social buttons up? And do I get MailChimp or something? You know, I have to get people to sign up. So I had to figure all that out. And I would always expect to do it that week. And then it would you know, wait till the next week. And it only took a year. But because again, I'm not 100% unable to do this stuff. I Eventually, I can make things happen, especially if there's some external pressure. I do think that uh, one year for a single blog post, that might be a record. I have to give you credit for that. <laughs> I, I had written a, a handful of I actually only posted one of them because the blog quickly became something that was different than I kind of thought it was going to be. So the other ones didn't make sense anymore. But yeah, no, I, I was really bad. You know, I was still working on our other company a decent amount. I was doing some other stuff. I wasn't totally sitting around, but I really, you know, I went really slowly. I moved really slowly. And, I, and of course, I procrastinated on Wait But Why by, you know, continuing to work 
on the tutoring company, which I wasn't supposed to be doing anymore. But that suddenly was much easier than starting this new thing. <laughs> and then what happened was then I got a huge amount of assistance for my problem because the blog very early, thank God for my own issues, very early got an audience. And a couple of early posts went very viral, which was huge because if that hadn't happened, I don't know if I could have kept up the productivity, but suddenly there was an audience. And that is in its own way a panic monster. And I, I suddenly had people who were here, who liked it, who were counting on me to write more things. And if I didn't, they were going to go away. So I actually ended up with a panic monster pretty soon. And that's part of why I was then able to continue the productivity. And, and then I ended up, you know, if it took me a year to write that first post. I ended up writing the equivalent of like, you know, three or four full length books over the next, you know, year, year and a half. I just ended up producing a ton because this audience then motivated me to and scared me into doing it so they wouldn't leave. It's amazing how an audience can actually spur you to productivity when you know that somebody's listening. Oh my God, yeah. Well, and not just listening, but someone's going to stop listening if you don't get your damn thing out. And so it was a lot of pressure for that reason. And it was, it was suddenly I'd be lying in bed at night and all day I will have wasted too much time and then I'll be in bed thinking like, oh my God, like there's people on the site right now and you haven't put something on the site. Like you have to work on your thing. So that is this panic monster present in my life all the time which is very, very important for my productivity. You talk about different types of procrastinators, which I found fascinating because a lot of people go, well, I don't procrastinate, but I have friends who do. And other people go, I procrastinate and it's a huge disaster. How come I can't get over it and other people can? I'd love to go through the four types because when I was reading this, I thought, I don't really procrastinate that much. And then when I read the four types, I went, oh, I've done a lot of these. And sometimes I fall into one of these categories, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs and successful people that fall into one or sometimes even more of these different categories as well. Yeah, I think the 20% of people, I read some stat, the 20% of people like, suffer from chronic procrastination, okay? And so those people are people who are procrastinating on their short-term deadlines, and they're pulling all-nighters, and they're cramming at the last second and getting their, finishing their work on the drive to work. And that's the very visible kind of procrastination we all see. So, and we think that's it, 20% of people, and it's a pretty big problem. But what I suspect is that really almost everyone, not everyone, but most people are procrastinators in one form or another. So another form is the kind I mentioned where you're busy all the time, you're doing all this stuff, but you're not actually working on the important things that contribute to your long-term mission goals and values very often at all. You're spending actually a two hours of your week on that stuff and 50 hours of your week so you want to figure out what's important, like, are you working on something that has a chance to be on your epitaph, that has a chance to be written on your gravestone as like the thing you did? And most of the time, you're not. You're working on stuff that no one's going to care about in a week. And so that's a procrastinator, even though they feel, oh, I'm getting all my stuff done. I'm responsive on email. I never miss a deadline. And yet, if you ask them, take a big step back, look at your whole life. Are you working on important stuff? Very often, they'll say no. And I think that is also a complete and utter procrastinator. And then there's people like, at least that person may be that their career has that important epitaph-worthy stuff in it, and they're just not focusing on that part. But then there's the even broader procrastinators of people who are spending 10 or 20 years working on a mission that is not really the thing that they care about. And that's the broadest, most macro procrastinator. And those people develop, like I think, very often a deep depression as life goes on that no one else knows about. And sometimes they don't even understand why it's there. And it's this quiet kind of sad part of their life that they don't really talk about. I felt myself kind of being in that zone when I was doing all these things one at a time that never felt like the thing I wanted to be doing. I think that, you know, when you start including those kinds of procrastinators and those people aren't going to be identified as chronic procrastinators, they won't even might not even think of themselves as procrastinators. They probably don't. But that is what's happening in a very broad sense. They are procrastinating on their whole life mission on what it should be. Maybe they don't know what their life mission is and they're not spending the most important thing for them to be doing is figuring it out. And they're procrastinating on really, whether it's therapy, a journal or whatever it is, or trying new things and quitting their job, they're procrastinating on, on finding their calling. So because it's hard, I mean, who wants to do that on a random Wednesday? I'll do that next month, next year. Uh, I have kids now. I'm just starting this other thing or work got really busy or I, you know, I, this isn't the time I need money now. There's always something you can always put it off. And that's the monkey being sneaky in the background. The monkey is not being obvious. That's a very clever monkey who is kind of convinced the rational decision maker, you know, that, oh, I know you're doing the important stuff and the rational decision maker feels good about it. And the monkey's snickering in the back saying, ha, you think you fell for it. And, you know, you realize that 20 years later. I see this 
in a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, you've got the four types, the disastinator, someone who never accomplishes anything because there's no urgency and they're able to continue procrastinating. The impostinator, who you mentioned earlier, where busy work and bullshit rule the day. They look busy, they accomplish nothing, and busy does not equal productive. We know that and often entrepreneurs learn that the hard way. And entrepreneurs also fall into the successinator. I know lots of these people now, they work successfully, but there's no balance. It's better than the rest, but you're still limited in your professional possibilities. You can do this great work, often it ends up maintaining your business instead of really diving deep and building your business, working on the business instead of working in the business. And this whole spiral, or this whole phenomenon has to stop because it's unpleasant, you sell yourself short in terms of what you can get done, the epitaph work, the deep work, and you only end up doing what you have to do and not what you want to do, and of course that affects you, it affects your family, and it's the result of having a little bit of a low confidence when it comes to whatever part of your life you're trying to work on. It kind of allows you to become self-defeating, and and then, of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. What can we do to start to get out of this? I mean, you said yourself during and pre-show, look, I'm by no means somebody who's defeated procrastination. However, I think it makes sense to teach or to start telling people who are listening, who are going, this is me, what do I do? How do we start to recover? I mean, how do we start to prove to ourselves that we can do the work? I like what you just said, working in your business versus working on it. That is the kind of thing that happens. And I also like your interview with Cal Newport when he said that fewer people are doing deep work now than ever before because there's so many distractions and other things. And it's also the most important time to be doing it. You get more out of deep work than you ever did before. And I think that the internet and other potential distractions have actually really given the monkey a lot more power. It has really made it harder to do that Q2 work, which I think is what Cal Newport's talking about when he says, you know, deep work. That's stuff that is super important and you need to just have this incredible discipline to sit there and do it and dig in and not let yourself get distracted because it's when you're doing a lot of the important work, you're inventing new thoughts, you're inventing new strategies. You're not just going through the motions on something you know how to do. It's hard and it takes a ton of mental energy. You know, the challenge is to figure out how to get there. Again, I spent a lot of time not there. And now I'm each post for me is a huge struggle. But I do find myself because I keep putting out posts, even if they take a while, each post involves a lot of deep work. And it feels incredible to get there to do that deep work. And it's good for your self-esteem. It's like you said, it's a confidence thing. Then your self-fulfilling prophecy starts to change. You know, we all have a storyline about ourselves in our own heads, and it does play out. And to change it, I compare it to a basketball player on a cold streak. You can't just decide to start hitting shots. Physically hitting a shot does something to you. It changes your storyline. You will actually start to believe that that is who you are, someone who can hit shots. You know, even if you know you could be the kind of person, if you're not hitting shots, you think, well, I could be, but your storyline just looks at the reality and says, but I won't because I don't normally. And then once you do, once things start to go well, once you find yourself able to kind of take the reins from the monkey by will, not because of the panic monster, if you actually do it, that changes your storyline. Now the storyline says, well, the truth is that we don't normally do it, but we did it last time. So now you're not even sure what, you know, if you were betting on your own storyline, you're not even sure because now it's interesting. It got interesting suddenly. Now if the next day you do it again and you win again, now the storyline starts to be like, you know, I didn't used to do it, but now I've done it twice. I think I've actually learned how to, and now your confidence is in a different place. So you have to actually get over that hump to kind of overpower your storyline in order to change it. Overpower your bad habits, which takes a tremendous amount of willpower in order to change those habits. And once they're changed, it doesn't take willpower anymore because you're just, your habits just make it easy. So it's like, it's the hardest thing in the world is the initial adjustment, the starting of something. You know, I could have spent 20 years starting Wait But Why instead of one. That easily could have happened and I just never would have done it. That's how a lot of things happen. And for me, I happened to be able to get it going partially because I had a business partner. So I'd spent 10 years not doing something creative full time and I just willed myself to kind of start it as well. You know, it's not a very satisfying answer to say eventually you just have to will yourself to kind of change the storyline, to get out of the deep groove that you're in, you know, do something different because that's when suddenly the groove starts to change. And then you find yourself, the new place you've gotten yourself, that starts to become a groove of its own. That's a, you know, a good habit. And I think that the challenge to everyone is how do I do it? You know, this is not ever going to be easy. 
I'm going to have to get myself out of a deep groove into a place that doesn't have a groove yet so that a new groove can form in a healthier place and in a more empowered place. And I think that's a personal challenge for everyone. You have to know how your inner psychology works and figure out what is going to make you change your deeply ingrained behavior. And maybe that's telling a bunch of people. Maybe it's not telling anyone. Maybe, you know, one thing, I, my inbox was totally out of control. Classic procrastinator thing, of course. You know, I'm perfectionist. My inbox is either at zero and I keep it at zero, or I fall off the wagon and suddenly it's at 80 and then it's at 160 and then it's at 900 and I just want to die. That kept happening and I found myself being at zero in the minority of the time and most of the time being at 900. So I got a recommendation to do something called Yesterbox, which is every day you answer every email from yesterday and you don't let yourself answer anything today unless it's urgent. Then you actually, you know, you do it in the morning, you get up to midnight the day before, and then you sh actually close Gmail for the day. You take the email off your phone. You can't look at it the rest of the day. So it doesn't just, A, build up, and B, it doesn't just sit there and continue to invade your time and just be a tool for the monkey to go check something. And to, I've done so many things like that. You know, they have the tomato timer and they have every possible technique in the world, but it's too simplistic to say they don't work. Because you know what? Yesterbox worked for me. And it worked for my weird brain. It might not work for someone else's. But it's like finding the particular techniques and strategies that happen to work for your weird brain. And when you find them, then that can be a game changer. So it's just about experimentation and not giving up on this and being like, I will figure out how to do this. It's important enough. And I'm not going to stop trying things. And also understanding that it's okay that you're probably going to fail for a while at this mission. That doesn't mean I'll never do it. It means, of course, I'm going to fail for a while at trying to change my behavior because I've been doing this for years. And it's like how I grew up. It probably goes back to the way you know you were raised when you were five years old. Of course, I'm going to fail for a while. I had a little success this week. That's huge. Instead of thinking, oh my God, of course, I had a little success and I couldn't replicate it. It's that kind of self-defeating thing that has to be changed as well in order to make this work. It's a set of habits like most things. It happens bit by bit. It's a set of bad habits that need to be changed. The important concept is that it's not some innate personality trait that you can't change. It's not like your height. It's not your metabolism, which you can also, of course, take steps to change. This is something that probably got built in over time. It's a result of mental processes that can also be defeated. And yes, there's accountability and support like that. You can create your own panic monster. You can force regular posting because you have an audience, timers, notes, deep work rules like airplane mode for your phone and everything. But you've really got to aim for slow and steady progress and rewrite that storyline and realize, look, this is something that can be changed. Because I think a lot of people who procrastinate really think, look, this is just the way that I am. And that is a defeatist mindset. They said, use me as an example, because I was as bad as it gets. I did my thesis in the last three days. I spent 10 years not doing what I wanted to in life. I actually did not believe I ever could like just fully dive into a project in the arts, something I was really, really passionate about and do it. And now I'm doing that. I mean, it's like, it makes me realize that I should never be daunted by the stuff. So I'm like, I figured out how to write a bunch of blog posts and like produce a ton of writing when I never, ever thought I was sure that I had just totally almost given up on, you know, there was some part of me that didn't give up. And a lot of creatives who have found success will say the same thing. They'll say that I had a huge problem. It took me a long time to get to what I wanted to do. But the fact is a lot of entrepreneurial or creative people, those kind of bold people with a lot of originality and a lot of natural ability, very often the same people that there's a part of themselves in their brain that doesn't let them go for what they want and is holding them back. And that's normal. That's really part of being that person. So that the other part of being that person is figuring out how to overcome it. Or you end up being the other kind of person, which is a person who never, ever ends up doing it. But I think that this starting place for a lot of this is just simple awareness, is taking a step back and seriously reflecting, whether with a therapist or in a journal or alone, just on what is important, things that contribute to your long-term mission, values, and goals, things that you want on your epitaph. The first step is just, what are those things? Are we even clear on what the endpoint I'm trying to get to is? Or maybe the endpoint I'm trying to get to right now is to find what those things are, and then that's the mission. So I think that a lot of times what holds people back, they don't realize till you know years later what those things even are because they never thought about it that hard, or they let their mother's values infiltrate their value system and that became their values or society's values or their friends or financial pressure and they lost touch with their inner self and what that inner voice actually cares about. Tim, thank you very, very much, man, for your time. Yeah, uh, thank you. I, uh, have, thanks for having me on. 
Really interesting stuff. Interesting guy, super sharp. I mean, look, when you start blogging and then suddenly Elon Musk is calling you because he loves your blog and he wants a feature in there, I highly recommend, look, if you have the patience to read, which is something that's tough for me, as, as everyone knows, Wait But Why, such a cool place to find info on AI and his sort of ADD procrastinator brain works just like mine does. And I think if you're one of those people who's saying, well, I can't read because I find myself Googling things and looking things up, Wait But Why is the the blog for you. And uh, yeah, you can always do it now or you can just do it later if you're a procrastinator and instead do something else. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Tim on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as all the other resources mentioned on the show. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players. You know that app you use on your phone to listen? You'll see the cheat sheet for this episode and we'll link to the show notes right on your phone. They'll be right there in your face. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. I've got a lot of engagement there and articles and other things like that that I like that I don't laundry list mention on the show. And we've got our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. That works in the U.S. Everybody else, go to the website at theartofcharm.com. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, and I've got a bunch of videos there with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it will definitely make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed in the US to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.